Sego and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host. I am flying solo this week. Um, look, this show is specifically for WPFW, and uh, I'm off on WBAI this week. So I want to address Washington directly. So first off, let me remind people that uh, we are listener-supported radio, and we not only count on but depend on your contributions to this fine radio station. So I ask right off the top that you go to the pledge line, you go to 202-588-9739 and make a contribution of any size. Uh, whatever you can do, please do. I mean, if, if you listen to this station, if you listen to this program, I'm hoping that you will uh, um, support us, support what we're doing here. Uh, if you would prefer to go online, you can go to wpfwfm.org and uh, make a contribution there, follow the prompts. And uh, look, uh, Regan and I both greatly appreciate uh, your support for not only the program, but more importantly, the stations that are carrying the program. So, um, and again, if you're listening on one of the affiliates as well, um, uh, please please support your, your radio station. It is, it's just so important, especially for these stations that are so dependent on uh, listener support. All right. There's a reason I want to talk directly to Washington, and it has to do with, look, all the conversation about the dysfunction, right? Uh, we, we see more evidence of it every single day. We, we hear about it, uh, Congress, the bipartisanship, uh, not having enough votes in the Senate for the Democrats to accomplish anything, filibuster rules. We, we hear about all this stuff. But you know what? There's a lot that happens that doesn't require this level of cooperation from Republicans and Democrats from, from, you know, these ideological separations of people. And, and, and I want to address some of that. And I also want to address what I call tokenism, the, the idea of doing a gesture or interpreting something in a way that lets you perhaps, I don't know, <laughs> ease your conscience. I mean, I, one of the, 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 uh, the things that strikes me is I remember when Mitch McConnell was asked about reparations, slavery reparations and that kind of stuff. And, and he, you know, gives his diatribe about, you know, folks today shouldn't be responsible for something that happened 150 years ago. And, and he suggested the Civil War and maybe even some of the civil rights legislation uh, should be counted as reparations. But he also mentioned the election. I mean, he says, we elected a black president. First off, I know he sure as hell didn't, didn't vote for a black president. But the mere idea that a pompous white man could stand up there and suggest that just by virtue of having somebody in office of color, that, uh, that that's enough. And that's reparations enough. But you know what? That kind of attitude or sentiment is not exclusive to Republicans. And, and we do see it. Look, to a certain extent, I, uh, I'm bothered by uh, some of the things that Obama didn't do, and frankly, some of the things that he did do. I mean, there are places along the way that Obama could have done much more for black people and much more for people of color. And, and when I hear people try to um, inflate what, you know, some of the positions that he's taken on things or his, you know, his support for something like the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I mean, look, clearly the United States voted against that thing back in 2007. In 2010, Obama 
claimed that he was going to clear the slate and reconsider this uh, this international declaration. And but he didn't. I mean, in the end, yes. And in fact, I went down to Washington. I, I sat in and participated and spoke at at some of these events that were basically uh, organized by the State Department to evaluate this UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But in the in the wake of that, after after many of us spoke, and you know there were there was a two day event down there. What Obama said was that he supported the aspirations of the agreement. He didn't say he supported it, and he certainly didn't sign on to it or, or make any commitment to follow the minimum standards established by the international community for how nation states like the United States should be treating indigenous populations. He didn't. I mean, he said he supported the aspirations of the agreement, provided it didn't conflict with U.S. laws. Well, therein lies the problem. The problem is the United States doesn't meet the international standard. And, and that standard is the minimum standard. It is the minimum standard for survival and dignity of indigenous peoples. And the United States doesn't meet it. Look, for the most part, the, uh, the standard that is established in the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was that free, prior, and informed consent must be gotten, must be obtained, must, must occur for nation states to administer policies, practices, or actions that, that impact Native peoples. That's not what exists in the United States or Canada. No, not at all. What exists in the United States and Canada are, is this notion of, well, 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 we'll have consultation. Well, consultation isn't consent. I'm checking a box because you had a public meeting is not the same thing as saying, well, we, we gave Native people all of the information. We allowed them to freely access that information. And we allowed them to either come to a consensus or not. That's what free, prior, and informed consent means. It means that there isn't coercion. There isn't withholding of information. There isn't this notion, okay, we're, well, we're going to do an environmental review of, of, of a pipeline, you know, only in 10-mile segments so we don't have to look at the entire environmental impact. No, that's not free, prior, and informed consent. Obama, during his administration, said that that he, by executive order, was demanding that any executive branch or agency or department that was going to administer a policy that was impactful to Native people would require consultation. And then he didn't follow through with it. You know, I'll give you, give you an example right off the top. There was a time when, when there was an effort by the Democrats to push through um, children's health insurance, and they called it CHIPRA. I think it was... Uh, um, Children's Health Insurance um, Program, you know, Reauthorization Act or something like that. At the tail end of that, they, they had, uh, well, first off, the Republicans said, well, you got to pay for it. So the way they, they were um, planning on paying for it was increasing the excise tax on tobacco products. Well, on the tail end of that law, that Reauthorization Act, was this notion of floor tax. And what they said was that like if you were a manufacturer or, or a major wholesaler or something like that, and you cleared a bunch of product at the old, because they were increasing the excise tax. If you cleared it at the, at the old excise tax rate and it was still on your floor, that you would have to pay the added difference of, of the increase in the excise tax. In other words, they didn't want a bunch of people clearing a bunch of product at the old rate 
bumping up the price and then selling it as if this price was now being impacted by a, a, a rise in the, in the excise tax. They didn't want this to be a windfall in a way that manufacturers and, and major national wholesalers could, uh, could avoid the taxes. That, that was the, the whole point. It was never intended to, uh, to be enforced on a native territory where we had purchased product from a wholesaler necessarily, or, or they were sit- we had cigarette products sitting on the shelf, and, and, and that we would have to pay, play a, pay a floor tax on that. It, but you know what? We got targeted. We got targeted by the, the Treasury Department. They sent notices to, to native retailers and said, well, we think you have this much product on your shelf, so we're assessing you... Uh, a, a, a tax levy of um, you know fifty thousand or a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand. Some 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 of these uh, bigger retailers and native wholesalers were being assessed these taxes. You know over a million dollars. But the fact is that when this thing passed, and I, and I talked to both Senator Gillibrand's office, U.S. Senator from New York, and one of the U.S. Congressmen from New York, Brian Higgins' office. I talked to both their offices. I said, look. Was it your plan to have tax officials trying to levy taxes against our stores on, on native territory? And they said, no, it wasn't. So I addressed this whole issue. When all, actually, I met with um, some of the, the White House staff, the senior policy advisor to, uh, to the president. And I said, look, this was a policy decision, and there was no consultation. So I, I, I tell this long story just to explain that even though Obama had this standing executive order, for consultation, and, and let me remind you, the Treasury Department is an executive uh, agency. It's an executive branch agency. And while there, there seemed to be a, a diminishment in the, in the enforcement and the attempt to collect that taxes, it didn't go away completely. In fact, there's some buzz that, that there's this floor tax levy that's still out there for a bunch of uh, native retailers. So this just gives you an example about the doublespeak. But, you know, even on, on issues that were perhaps less contentious than, than taxing, you know, raising a tax for, for covering uh, children's health insurance, you know, I, I go back to another, another simple thing that Obama could have done. Didn't require, look, it didn't require consultation, didn't require Congress, didn't require anything. It would have been simply for the, for the president of the United States in the nation's capital where a football team at the time, although Washington has changed its name since then, was using a racial slur for, for their, their football team's name. You know, and I heard all kinds of you know, praise. Well, Obama weighed in on this thing, and he basically told uh, Washington to change his name. And then I had to go and look at the quote. And I'm going to read, and this is the actual quote here. So I'm not paraphrasing here. This is the actual quote. Says, if I were the owner of the team, and I knew that there was a name of my team, even if it had a storied history that was offending a sizable group of people, I think about changing it. Okay, <laughs> look, I know what, what people tell me, well, that's just typical Obama speak. No, it is avoiding the issue. Obama didn't say, Washington, you should change the name of your team because you, the name is offensive. It's a racial slur. He didn't say that. He, he made all these hypotheticals and then made it it made it like it was a numbers issue. If a sizable group of people were offended by it, well, you know what? By depending on how you measure the native population, we're not a sizable group. So he says, if I had a team 
And, and if that team had a name that a sizable group found offensive, he didn't say, I'd change it. He said, I'd think about changing it. See, this is where, you know, and, and it does get into what I mentioned earlier, tokenism. So this kind of statement gets made, and it's a very noncommittal statement. But even, I mean, look, I heard Native people, Suzanne Harjo, just raving, oh, president, our, our president, our president weighed in on the issue. Barely, he barely weighed in on the issue. So, I'm, you know, again, just because somebody of color gets put into, a, into an office doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to see a change, a dramatic change in, in policy. It just doesn't happen that way. Just like, you know, for those who were hoping that, you know, Joe Biden was going to come into office and everything was going to change after four years of Trump. Yeah, not so much. Not so much. And, and we've seen it in immigration. We've seen it in, you know, in everything. And this, this current president was not a sea change from, from Trump. Look, does he speak better? Sure. Is he as, as obnoxious and, and offensive as Trump? Absolutely not. But he wasn't a, a, a dramatic shift to the left after, uh, after Trump. In fact, he was a compromise. He, he was a huge compromise. So in spite of the fact that you have this huge compromise of, of a president after four years of Trump, you still have the same dramatic antagonism uh, being hurled at him from, from the right. So what can, what, you know, what can a president do? Well, like I said, there, there's quite a bit a president can do. They, have, they do have a lot of authority um, that is outside of the, you know, the checks and balance necessarily of, um, uh, of Congress. Among the things that they do is they control the Interior Department. I mentioned last week on the show, and I'm going to bring it up again. The Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, which was passed in 1989, it's, it's going on 33 years. This law has been in place for 33 years, and no Interior Department has done its job in enforcing the regulations, particularly against the states. So what you've done is you, this law in many ways, has, has empowered states to commit extortion against Native territories. And no administration, including the current one. And who sits at the head of the Interior Department in the current administration? A Native person. And I know everybody wanted to cheer. Everybody wanted to cheer. Deb Hallen, Native, Native woman, is the head of the Interior Cabinet position. Well, you know, just because a brown face gets put in there doesn't mean that she is going to necessarily do anything different than the Interior Department's back to George H.W. Bush because thus far she hasn't. Now, she can and she may. I hope she will. But thus far she hasn't. I mean, just, just like this, this guy who's the head of National Parks, um, uh, Sam. I mean, look, it, it's great to see a Native person, you know, break these glass ceilings. But at the end of the day, they stop being our advocates, and then they become part of the system. And we're supposed to look at those appointments as wins for us, even if nothing changes. And just like black people were supposed to feel so satisfied because they, look, I'm glad Barack Obama got elected president. He was better than the alternative. But just by virtue of getting elected doesn't mean that's a win for people. I mean, does it break a glass, a glass ceiling? Sure. Does it open the door for 
for for the next person of color to to be in that office? Sure. But from a Native standpoint, I don't look at Native people entering into that system as a win. I don't. I mean, and there's a reason I don't. Because Deb Haaland serves at the pleasure of Joe Biden. He does. She doesn't serve us. We didn't elect her. I mean, even when she was in Congress, she was elected primarily by white people. So her obligations, her, her constituency certainly isn't me living on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. And look, I'm not trying to dog her specifically, but we have a major issue in what's happening with the in, uh, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that's been going on for, for many, many years. And the implied threat that has been out there relating to this, um, this act of Congress is that the states can shut down a native gaming operation simply by ending their gaming compact. Or if, they, if a gaming compact requires a renewal, fa- uh, failure to renewal, renew it. So that's an implied threat. It's, it's rarely, I don't think it's ever really been spoken but all of, the, all of these gaming lawyers that advise all of these native territories, they all say, look, you got to keep the state happy enough that they, that they are willing to um, negotiate um, either a compact to open up in the first place or one to renew. And the reason this is so lopsided was when IGRA first passed, and don't get me wrong, IGRA is a terrible law. It, it does a lot of things that are damaging to native people. It attempts to do a few things that are supposed to help Native people. The, among the things that it's supposed to do, it's supposed to help us, help protect us from organized crime and from overtly aggressive states or overly aggressive states, depending on how you want to put that. Um, but it also um, was supposed to, by creating this clear-cut legal premise for Native gaming within U.S. law to operate, not that... Not that it was illegal for us to operate in the first place, but uh, there were some people who, who questioned it, right? But the, the gaming vendors, the vendors who provide machines and um, you know, uh, consultation, um, uh, even the financiers, I mean, all of the, all the people who provide you know, food services, you know, you know, all, all, all of this stuff, those vendors who have to have licenses, gaming licenses to, serve, to service in places like Las Vegas or Nevada in general or Atlantic City or, or other gaming venues, they could have had their, their bigger market, uh, which was the, the, the non-native market, um, threatened if they were dealing with, with native territories or native peoples who the, the federal government would somehow deem illegal or questionable, or, or even if state governments did, because states had a lot of power over these, these, um, these vendors. So what IGRA did was it, it, it made it so uh, it was easier for vendors to contract with, with native gaming uh, operations. So th- th- that's supposed to be the upside. Well, when the IGRA was first passed, one of the things that was included in the law was a provision that said, if a state refuses to negotiate a gaming compact or refuses to negotiate a gaming compact with, with the native peoples um, in good faith, the native territory, the, the native government, the tribe could sue the, the state, the offending state in federal court. Well, Florida challenged that. They said, look, you, you can't create a law that opens the door for 
a, a native territory, a native a tribe to sue a state. And, and they cited, you know, that it was a constitutional violation. I think it was the 11th Amendment or something long, something like that. And Florida won that, uh, that case. And so that provision in the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that offered some leverage to balance the power between the states and, and, and so-called tribes um, in this, this approach to, to getting a, a gaming compact, that, that, that balance of power was, was severely shifted because now the states or the native territories had no leverage. And, and that's important. It, it's an important thing to, to bring up. And nothing backfilled it. I mean, there was no change in the law. Now, what was said unofficially, you know, or from a policy standpoint, not from a regulation standpoint, was, well, if, if uh, you know, if a native territory can't negotiate a compact with the state, perhaps they could negotiate with, you know, the National Indian Gaming Commission or, you know, some federal agency. But it was never codified into law. So it's left hanging out there. So it, it shifted the balance of power to, to states. And now the other thing that was clear in the passage of IGRA was that the, the, the states could not tax native gaming operations. But they could play hardball when it came to whether they would negotiate a compact and they could try to get some concessions out of native territories, um, oftentimes without giving up any concessions. And, and look, I, I've seen land claims get folded into gaming compacts. Certainly that's what happened in the Seneca Nations case. They, they actually reduced funds that they, that they had been provided by the federal government because of a, of a, um, a settlement case, a settlement uh, that was passed through Congress, and they reduced their funds for land acquisition down to a small amount as some, something to sweeten the pot to get New York State to, to negotiate a compact with them. And it wasn't even necessary. But I won't, I won't belabor that point. But what happens in many of these places is you have states that say, well, we would like to enter into a revenue sharing agreement with you. Now, the Interior Department, at the beginning of this uh, implementation of, of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, made strong statements about revenue sharing. They said, look, revenue sharing cannot be a tax. It has to be something that the state gives a concession to a gaming operation in exchange for something, frankly, of, uh, of equal or lesser value. So in other words, whatever the state concedes to a gaming operation, it has to be worthwhile for the gaming operation to say, okay, I'm going to give you some revenue sharing for that concession. But it has to be advantage. So they can't like give way more revenue for a concession that didn't have much value. In fact, what the Interior Department said is that a concession for revenue sharing has to be substantial and quantifiable. That, th those are the words the Interior Department used. So by quantifiable, you, you, simply, you should be able to determine what its value is. So if a state like New York is going to say, well, I'm going to give you a, a level of exclusivity for your gaming operations. <laughs> and not clear, not exclusive um, <laughs> exclusivity. I mean, New York State was going to still going to do lots of gambling in uh, in the region around um, Seneca Gaming, but I'm going to give you some. Well, how do you measure the value of that, and who measures it? I mean, it seems to me a third party, an independent third party, should have said, "Well, let's look at what the the state is offering, 
and we'll put a price tag to it and we'll put a value to it. And then we'll make a projection on, uh, on what the Senecas should pay for that concession. But there was neither an accurate projection done on what the percentage that the state was asking for for this concession, which increased over time, by the way. It went from 18% of the net slot drop of, uh, of the slot machines to 22 to 25. And, and, and I've mentioned this several times, even on my podcast. Net slot drop is not the net revenue. What net slot drop means is that when a slot machine takes in money and then you um, take out the payouts, that gross revenue uh, is essentially, you know, what the percentage is. So it's 25% of that. So it's the intake of a slot machine minus the payout. 25% of that was going, was going to go to the state. So out of the 75% that the Seneca's got to keep, they had to pay for everything. The machines, the licenses, the permits, the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the footprint, the, the casino, the, the staff, the waitresses, the, the free booze. I mean, everything. All of the other amenities that went along with the venue that houses these, these slot machines, the Seneca's had to pay for. So in reality, that 25% of the net slot drop was actually closer to... 50% of the net revenue of, of a slot machine. That's what the state was getting. Okay, but what does that equal to? Well, in the, in the 14 years of the first term of the Seneca's gaming um, uh, compact, that would have been $1.6 billion. And the only reason it didn't turn out to be $1.6 billion was because the Seneca's fought them um, over, uh, had, had a dispute with them because the their exclusivity was not really being honored, not in principle anyway, because the, the state was opening up, opening up casinos with class two machines is what they were saying. They were putting slot machines that were set up just a little bit different in their, in racetracks that were in the exclusivity zone. So the Seneca's withheld payment. They, they negotiated a settlement. They withheld $600 million. And then uh, as a means to settle it, they offered to, to um, give them, 400 million and keep 200 million of it. And that's why rather than $1.6 billion, it was $1.4 billion that was paid out over that 14 year period. Now, there was no way to assess that that um, revenue sharing agreement tied to exclusivity, that the exclusivity that the state was offering was in any way, shape or form worth, you know, over a billion dollars. But you see, these are supposed to be um, approved and reviewed by the Interior Department. Well, the problem is that the Interior Department didn't make an assessment. They, they didn't approve the gaming compact, including this revenue sharing agreement, or reject it. They did what we, we call punted. <laughs> because the, the Interior Department, on, uh, as they're addressing some of these issues, they can either take a stance one way or the other, or they can remain silent, which allows, which is essentially the same thing as some sort of tacit approval. And so that's, that's what we had that went on for 30 years. Now, the Senecas are, are, are essentially throwing in the towel on a, on a major battle with the, um, with the state of New York over gaming revenue that they're now being forced into. And they're being forced into because, again, that, that lack of, 
of a level playing field as it relates to negotiating a a compact. So what what the what the situation is is that the Senecas are feeling like if they don't pay this now, that they will uh, not they will not be able to renegotiate the the next um, stage of their gaming compact with uh, with New York, which is uh, set to uh, the, the current compact is set to expire at the end of 2023. So they're going to cut a check for almost $500 million, then agree to pay 25% of the net slot drop, like I said, almost 50% of the net revenue for the, um, for the next two years. And they're going to negotiate a ga- uh, another gaming compact, you know, to take it, uh, you know, to become effective after this one expires. But how can any of that happen if the Interior Department's been silent for 30 years, including today with a Native woman at the head of the Interior Department? And let's be clear here. Deb Haaland knows this issue. She actually worked for Laguna uh, Pueblo, um, worked, she, she did some level of management um, with their gaming operation. And she, one of the tasks that she had was dealing with the state of New Mexico that was trying to um, squeeze them for, for revenue sharing. So she knows the issue, but she also knows the law as it was written, as it was intended, and that the, that the, the states are right now extorting these revenue sharing agreements out of, out of Native territories. Now, one thing I've got to say, what IGRA says right in the beginning is that in order to be um, to oper- have a gaming facility that operates under the terms of IGRA, to be legal under this law, that a gaming compact must be negotiated between the Native territories, the, the tribe, uh, and the state. Well, that happened. What it doesn't say is that that compact, uh, that, that, that once they have opened up, spent their half a billion dollars, or in the case of the Senecas, almost a billion dollars in, uh, in building out three gaming facilities, that the state can hold you hostage now. Now the state can say, well, I want certain things in the gaming compact, like revenue sharing, and if I don't get it, I won't renew, and then I'll have the power to shut you down. Well, it doesn't say that in law. But see, the Interior Department won't address it. So, you know, I bring all of this stuff up because this is the tokenism I'm talking about. You put somebody like Deb Haaland in that office, and we're all supposed to think that that's enough. You put somebody, you know, a Native person into a position. You put a Black person into a position. Look, the, the mayor of New York City is Black. Well, that's great. But, the, but the, the downside is that he was a cop. And there are so many policing issues that New York City has to address. So what is the bigger issue? That the current mayor is pro-police or that he's a black man? Well, this, this is what we have here. So Deb Haaland is, is a devoted Democrat. She was a, a Democratic operative. I think she you know, was chairman of, of the party. Uh, you know, in her, um, in her district or whatever, however that works out in, in New Mexico. So she was a devoted Democrat. So when she takes this office, is she more in line with 
Biden's wishes, of course, because she serves at the pleasure of Joe Biden and the, Demo and the Democratic Party in general? Or is she really bringing her concerns over Native uh, peoples uh, to the office? And look, when you, when you look at the actions, when you, when you, again, when you, when you assess, give a, a report card to Obama on how black people fared during his presidency, I don't know that he, how good a grade he gets. Well, from a Native standpoint, we know we're never going to see a, a, a president of the United States who's Native. And if we do, we know that he's going to be beholding to, to party politics, not, not to us. Well, that's the question that we have for, for Deb Howland. As she sits in this office, is she being put there as a, as a matter of tokenism? Because, you know, look, it's not enough to have somebody say something that is, you know, or, or to, to appear to be um, standing on the right side of these issues. Look, we, we just, you know, celebrated Martin Luther King Day. And King was very concerned about complicity in injustice. I mean, I got a couple of quotes here. And, and there are many more on the subject. But he said, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as those who perpetrate it. So if you just put your hands over your eyes while injustices are happening, you're as guilty as the people you know, who are perpetrating that. And, that's, and that is, you know, a, that, that sentiment goes back way before Martin Luther King. But he felt strongly about it. Here's another one. He said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. So look, if we have a friend sitting in, at the head of the Interior Department and she does nothing, her silence is more impactful to us than, you know, than the fact that, that we, we know we have very aggressive states. We know the problem we have with New York State. And we know some of the racist language that came out of uh, the, the former governor, Cuomo, and we know <laughs> that the, the current governor, Kathy Hochul, that she was very much a part of that administration and that she's continuing many of the same policies. In fact, she's even more conflicted on gaming than, than the previous governor because her husband is the head of a gaming corporation, Delaware North. So am, what am I more impacted by? The, the aggression from the state or the silence of those who are supposed to regulate that aggression from the state? Well, I, I would argue that I'm more impacted by, by Deb Haaland's silence than I am by Kathy Hochul's or, you know, Andrew Cuomo's insistence. There's another King quote says, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. So if Deb Haaland does not address this issue, then she's betraying us. I mean, it really, it really does come down to being that simple. There comes a time that silence is betrayal. Right now, the, the Senecas, which rely almost entirely on gaming revenue, almost entirely on gaming revenue, they're being fleeced for almost 50% of their of their slot revenue by New York State. And they don't feel like they have a choice. I personally believe they do. 
But I think the choice that they have is bound to the Interior Department enforcing the regulations and keeping the states honest, which they haven't done in 30 years. They haven't done this, and we're going back to, to, to Bush, not, not the silly Bush, <laughs> his father, George Bush. I mean, Iger was passed during his administration. Eight years of Clinton didn't address it. Eight years of Obama didn't address it. Obviously, eight years of you know, W didn't address it, and four years of Trump. So now what? Now we have a native person. We have a friend sitting there in Washington whose job it is to make sure, specifically, and look, and look, the Interior Department has a lot of responsibilities. I get it. They've got forests and you know, oil, lease, oil leases and all kinds of other stuff that, yeah, that's what, that's what Deb Haaland's job is, is to continue to support the, the, uh, the fossil fuel industry. But when it relates to something like this that doesn't require Congress, I mean, let, let me be clear. The reason I'm so animated about this is because this doesn't require McConnell's support. This requires just Deb Haaland doing the right thing, doing her job, saying, look, if I evaluate the revenue-sharing agreements, not just that New York has, but many states have, based on the standard that's been that already been established in word, but not in deed, they're illegal. New York State cannot offer an exclusivity that doesn't even exist, really, that has little or no value, and then try to squeeze the Senecas for, you know, for a couple of hundred million dollars a year. You, you just can't do that. It's illegal. That's all she has to do. And look, and she doesn't have to view it through my lens. She can view it through her own lens or through the lens of some, you know, again, independent industry analysts. They can say, look, I mean, because here's the, here's the bottom line. The Seneca Nation is less competitive in fact, let me, let, me, let me flip it the other way. Non-native gaming is served better when the Seneca Nation pays so they don't have an advantage over, um, over their operations. And, and in, in case you're, you are not familiar with what's happening in New York, New York not only expanded their racetracks into um, casinos, although they, their argument is we technically are using a machine that looks and plays like a slot machine, but it doesn't um, qualify as a class three gaming facility, a class three gaming um, device. So we are not competing against um, native class three gaming with our class two machines. Yes, you are. You're, you're taking the same market share. I mean, if a person is going to sit at a, at a slot machine and not really be able to tell the difference between a class two machine and a class three machine, then you're, you're taking the same market. So, so New York State has been involved in competing against native gaming for many years. But at the tail end of the Seneca's gaming compact that, that you know, needed to be renewed um, in 2017, it was in that year, the last year of that gaming compact, that, that New York State changed its, US, its, its state constitution, I'm sorry, its, its state constitution, constitution to allow for class three gaming. So now... New York State is involved in class three gaming as well. One of those casinos that was 
approved by the state, so a state-licensed casino, exists right on the edge of what they call the exclusivity zone, but it's still the same market. In fact, Delago Resort or Casino, or whatever they call themselves, uh, which is near Rochester, advertises here in Western New York. They advertise and they depend on gaming revenue from this market. They, they have a shared market. Now, they stretch a little farther towards Syracuse, but they clearly are they they clearly exist in the the same market gaming market as the Seneca Nation, and once those slot um, or those uh, casinos open up those state licensed casinos, all of a sudden they realized that there was a bit of a saturation point because look New York isn't the only state that does gaming New Jersey Pennsylvania Ohio Massachusetts Connecticut I mean there there there, there are other states close by New York that affect their market. Canada, major gaming operations. I mean, the biggest competitor the Seneca Nation has is on the Canadian side because Niagara Falls, Canada, has, I think, at least two, maybe maybe more, casinos. Uh, three, if you go, go down as far as uh, down to Fort Erie, I think. So there's a very saturated market. DeLago has not been able to, to maintain its debt service payments. They've actually reduced, and I don't know if all the time, but certainly on occasion, they've only been able to make interest payments. And one of the claims that came out at the Lago is, well, we can't compete against the Seneca Nation if they're not paying uh, paying the state. Well, wait, wait a second. What, what was that? So the state-licensed casino said on the record in a newspaper article that they could not compete against the Seneca Nation unless they were paying the state. Well, then clearly the Seneca Nation is less competitive when they're paying than when they're not paying. Now, when they said this, which, you know, and of course they were trying to make an excuse that somehow their, their financial woes or their poor performance, their, their inability to meet their, their performa for the state and for, the, for their shareholders was because the Senecas weren't paying. Well, the Senecas may not have been paying the state for a couple of years, for several years, but they were escrowing that money. So it still wasn't staying within their operating budget. It was being escrowed. So the fact that they couldn't compete against the Senecas probably didn't have anything to do with the fact that, uh, you know, that the revenue share uh, sharing provision was on hold. But if that revenue sharing provision of the, of the compact goes away, then clearly the Senecas are in a better position. And, you know, someone somebody says, yeah, but if they don't have that, even if it is diminished, this exclusivity, can't the state go and compete directly against them? Well, for one thing, they already are, uh, and they aren't that competitive. But the reality is they could not be a strong competitor to the Seneca Nation if a state-licensed casino has to pay you know, 20 30 40% of their operating margins back to the state, and the, and the Senecas don't pay anything. They have a better competitive advantage. They have better exclusivity by not paying than paying. Because the exclusivity that they're paying for isn't worth what they're paying. Now, this should be an easy thing for Deb Haaland and her interior department to assess. But what we've got so far has mostly been silence. Now, look, the reason the Senecas are throwing the towel in isn't because Deb Haaland has made, you know, uh, you know, taken a position against them. It's because she hasn't taken a position at all. 
And in the meantime, this, this, the Seneca Nation has been trying to push back against the state's imposition of these, uh, of, of these payments through the courts. And the courts have all ruled against the Seneca Nation because <laughs> they aren't our courts. <laughs> and frankly, the reason that they've been able to rule against Seneca Nation is because the Interior Department has been silent. So, I mean, my big issue is that for all of the talk that, that is, you know, coming out of Washington, and, and frankly, not just coming out of Washington, but, it, but it's being talked about on, on every news channel on a daily basis, is, is the dysfunction caused by the partisan split within, you know, the, the House and the Senate, and that the, the President of the United States doesn't, have, doesn't control enough of the Senate to get his agenda passed. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. That might be true for the Build Back Better plan. But it's not true when you understand the things that this administration, with its cabinet officials, the things that they can do but won't do. There is much that can happen. And, you know, from a Native standpoint, look, I understand that there are a lot of bigger issues that the United States fa faces than whether the Seneca Nation can be self-sufficient enough and generate enough revenue to support its people. They, uh, the United States, <laughs> in its entire existence, hasn't really cared whether Native people are self-sufficient self enough or not. They don't. That's why, you know, Obama, uh, you know, only offered some kind of tacit approval of the UN Declaration on the rights of indigenous people. By the way, the reason the United States voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was because they wanted to redefine what self-determination means. The international community viewed self-determination as, as you know, practically statehood, right? And the United States says, wait a second, when we're talking about Native people, we aren't talking about the international definition of, of self-determination. Yeah, we support self-determination, but we support internal self-determination, which means we support tribes having some authority to make decisions affecting them only. Some. Pending our approval, of course. They were, they were vehemently, I mean, this, and this came from the uh, National Security Agency. They said, we don't agree that Native peoples should be able to assert sovereignty over their lands. That, they, they flat out said that. They opposed this notion of self-determination that would somehow support the, this notion that Native peoples had the right to assert sovereignty over their own lands. That's why the United States voted against it. They thought this definition of self-determination was going to change international law too much. And it was going to um, essentially you know, recognize too much Native sovereignty. So that's why they opposed it. And that's why... Even when Obama supposedly um, announced his support for the aspirations of the agreement, he put a caveat there. Uh, you know, Canada did the same thing. Yeah, we support the, uh, um, the aspirations of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, as long as it doesn't conflict with our laws. But what if it does conflict with your laws? So then you don't. And that's where, and that's where we are. I mean, and so... You fast forward to where we are today, 
we still have some of the, that same kind of sentiment being expressed. It isn't just Mitch McConnell who thinks a black president was enough to, to satisfy black people. You've got, <laughs> you've got Joe Biden who thinks putting Deb Haaland in the Interior Department, should just putting her there, should be enough to satisfy us. And it's not. The reason we have such conflict with, in, with states and with the federal government is because of failure of the federal government to do the right thing. Deb Haaland should very easily be able to, to address the deficiencies of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. It doesn't need to, they don't need to pass a new law. Yeah, the law is flawed. But you know what? We've been working with a flawed law. And, and, and frankly, you know, some of our territories, not all, because look, just like Trump couldn't make money off of a casino <laughs> and lost his butt trying to be a casino mogul, casinos are not automatic um, golden gooses or geese, golden geese, I guess. <laughs> no, they're not. They are not recession proof. It, it is entirely possible to bankrupt a casino. Look. The Mash and Tucker Pequot, they had so much money thrown at them to, to build to build out, build out, build more, build more. They got to the point where they couldn't handle their debt service. The most successful gaming nation, organization in the world was Foxwood Casinos at one time. And they almost went back. They, they had to file for, for bankruptcy protection. And they had to reorganize because they overspent. So it is entirely possible, you know, and I look at the Seneca Nation, look, they overbuilt too. They've got a very successful casino up in Niagara Falls, a more successful casino in, in the city of Buffalo based on the, the investment. And then they have a casino that's um, on their Allegheny ter territory, and it's not so successful. Why? Because they overbuilt, they overspend, and part of the reason is because they were being advised that they could do this. Their gaming experts who negotiated their compact with for them, who legally advise them today, and their advice from their from their legal experts is, is to make a deal with the state. Keep paying. There's almost nobody advising the Seneca Nation to stand up and hold Deb Hallen's feet to the to the flames. And, and there is the problem. Because I go back to, you know, to, to what I call tokenism. We have people that get put into positions, sometimes at the tribal level. <laughs> Certainly we see it at the state level and we see it at the federal level. Whose job it is to be, to satisfy dissent simply by being there. Not because of their actions. There comes a time when silence is betrayal. That's the, that's the one that sticks with me from, from uh, MLK. And look, I don't, know how, I don't know how you calculate when that time comes. <laughs> I say it comes, it comes right at the, at the start. I don't think you have to have years of silence and complicity to be betrayed by people. I think you can judge that betrayal right off the, right off the bat. Biden's been in office for a year. 
I know Halland hasn't been in her office for a full year yet, but 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 she's been there. She does not have to seek Republican approval for her to enforce the regulations associated with, with the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and make the clear determination that IGRA was not written to empower states to extort money out of gaming operations. It's actually quite to the contrary. That's why all that language associated with revenue sharing uh, being illegal if it if it, it descends into being a tax. If you're forcing somebody to pay something, that's a tax. If you're giving something of value, especially of greater value for 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 shared revenue, well, that's not a tax. But that's not what exists here. In fact, that's not what exists anywhere. Most of these, these states that have offered exclusivities are getting much more revenue than the value of the, their exclusivity ever was. And that value was supposed to be substantial and quantifiable, but nobody quantifies it. And it's on the Interior Department. And you know, for the Interior Department to, to have been silent means that they've betrayed Native people. Now look, that should not come as a shock to anybody. But now there's a Native person that's heading it up. One that we're supposed to call Auntie Deb. We're all supposed to be pleased that she got the appointment. Well, if we get the same silence from her and her interior department as we have from the Trump interior department, from the Obama-Biden interior department, from the George W. Bush interior department, from the Bill Clinton interior department, and the George H.W. Bush interior department, then it's still silence and it's still a betrayal. Look, in these very, very partisan times, what has to happen are the things that don't require bipartisan support. I've got a whole list of them associated with Native territories that don't require Republican movement. And I don't even know that they're necessarily going to get Republican opposition anyway. But there are things that are... That are already established in terms of U.S. law as it relates to Native peoples. And all I want is for the, the federal government to enforce its laws against their states and the aggression that's coming out of the states. That's all I want. I'm not asking for new laws. I'm not asking for some gift. I'm not even asking for reparations. And not yet anyway. We'll see when we get there when we start talking about residential schools. But I'm not even asking for that. I'm saying just, just do your damn job. And stop blaming your dysfunction in Washington on the other party. You have plenty of authority to do certain things within your own system of governance that doesn't require approval from Mitch McConnell. So... That's my show. I wanted to address this tokenism. And this isn't just an attack on Democrats, but it is an attack on anybody who's hiding behind bipartisanship so they can remain silent. Again, there comes a time when silence is betrayal.
I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.